Those women who donated their eggs or sold their eggs during their college years, we don't really have a clear picture on their health from being put on those hormones because we don't track them. There's no database. I think that they do that on purpose. I don't think fertility industries are largely excited about doing research studies because they're gonna find that there are health risks to these women. They're gonna find that there are problems ethically, ethically as far as like socially, like what are these kids dealing with, with knowing that they are donor conceived and then also health risks. So I don't think informed consent exists in the space of fertility care. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Callie Fell. She is a woman who wears many hats. Some of you might be familiar with her as the host of Venus Rising podcast, where she has been so gracious as to have me on not once, but twice. Uh, She's a registered nurse. She's a mother and a former foster mom. She's the executive director at the Center for Bioethics and Culture and the program director of an offshoot of that called the Paul Ramsey Institute, uh, whose mission is to help seed the academy with moral and ethical reflection. She also is a co-producer, co-writer, and so many other things for a few films, The Detransition Diaries and Transmission, What's the Risk to Reassign Gender? Both of these films are projects of the Center for Bioethics and Culture, and you might recognize them from my recent interview with Jennifer Lal, who Callie works closely with. Uh, So Callie, it's an honor to have your expertise here with us today. Thank you for coming. Well, it's a pleasure to be on the flip side of things here. I always enjoy talking with you. Um, I'm used to asking the questions, so this is a little bit new, but I just really thank you so much for having me on the show today. Thank you. Well, I hope we can make the best use of our time together. You have so much expertise and you're modest about it. So it's, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been, we've been hunting around. We've been talking before we started recording just to, for, for me to get a better sense of all the sort of breadth and depth of, of Callie's knowledge and experience base. And, um, so one, one thing that's on our minds after, after conversing a little bit today is I think there's a, a theme around the, ethical dilemmas of perinatal health. Um, so you've said, for example, that in in the setting where you work, you've seen a lot of fentanyl addiction, uh, which has got to be so hard to watch and, and difficult to navigate when you're trying to um, think about what's best for mom and baby and what you're up against. Um, but many other concerning trends in the healthcare field as well. Um, so Callie, let's start there. Just give us the lay of the land. What are some of the most pressing moral and ethical challenges that people in the perinatal health industry are facing today in their attempt to provide good care? That is 
really great question. And I think there are many facets to that question. Um, Many things. Um, I think most people, at least in the healthcare space, are aware that the United States um, really is struggling as a first world country as far as um, maternity care, maternal morbidity and mortality. So things that happen to a mom, either while she's pregnant or right before, right after. Um, And there's a real deficit in the country right now surrounding care for women in that space. And so I think that's that is the biggest, the biggest um, issue that we're facing right now. And then add on top of that, everything else that's going on um, in our social lives and as a country or as a world, um, we have access, we were talking um, to uh, fertility care, fertility treatments now more than ever in the last two decades, which have their own um, risks and um outcomes. Um, for example, I was reading some research on um, the a new research that just came out that showed that um, kids who were born from IVF um, in vitro fertilization are more likely to have different cardiovascular abnormalities. And um, I thought that was interesting because, again, in the space of maternal health care, Women are largely impacted by cardiovascular health. That's like the one of the number one issues with women is um, risk to um, their life from cardiovascular events. And one of the events we see a lot of in also women who've undergone fertility treatments is a prevalence of um, preeclampsia or high blood pressure. And just kind of so we're we we already struggle with women having cardiovascular disease in this country, and then we're adding fertility treatment, which increases the risk for preeclampsia, a cardiovascular issue, and then also now this new study showing that children are impacted in this way too. So, um, and then as you just alluded to, our country it seems to be especially in the Bay Area really fighting um, the drug problem in the in the city. Um, and so we add that on top of um, on top of this conversation, women who are trying to get treatment or help for an addiction um, while they're pregnant or um, right after they delivered in some situations. Um, and then something that your audience will be most familiar with, but we also have um, changes in how we can address, some of these patients um, with kind of the removal of the word woman. Um, As a nurse, um, you know, I've spoken to others in the birth world that have been um, punished, let's say, that maybe that's a harsh word, um, but slapped on the wrist maybe for not saying birthing person or chest feeding. Um, You mentioned I'm a mom, I'm a new mom, and um, I took some classes in the Bay Area for just getting ready, and my husband took them with me. And just how 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 we found the word "woman" just be completely like erased from um, this education. It was more important to be um, proper to use chest feeding than than breastfeeding. I mean, we all have breasts, even males have breasts. It's still breast tissue, but anyway, I digress. So you have kind of all of these things that make being a perinatal nurse, um, challenging right now. And there's always challenges for nursing, um, for any field that when you deal with people, um, there are challenges, but right now 
those are, those are the biggest ones I think, and I'm probably forgetting some, but, um, that make it, make the job a little more challenging. (laughs) It sounds very challenging. It sounds like on the one hand you have an, it, it is your job to help people be healthier. On the other hand, it feels like your hands are tied and your mouth is taped shut because there are so many things that you're not allowed to say because they would be considered overstepping your bounds um, in that healthcare setting. I want to kind of go through the list of issues you brought up one by one. So you started with the fact that the U.S. is struggling with maternity care, morbidity, and mortality. Now, on its surface, this seems counterintuitive. As someone who's a rather a layperson in this regard, this is not a subject I know very much about. It's been my understanding that with the the whole last century, these are things that have that we've been improving with modern medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a first world country. We spend a lot of money on healthcare. So on its surface, like, well, why on earth would would we be having more issues now with maternity, morbidity, mortality issues? Um, on the other hand, I can I can speculate. <laughs> I can I can think about what some of those um friends behind that might be. So, but I want to hear it from you before I just dive into free associating. What what do you think is driving this being an issue right now when we have so many resources? Well, I think that's another really hard question to be to answer because if there was just one thing to blame or one thing causing it, then I think it'd be really easy to go in and pinpoint pick that issue and, 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 and try to rectify it. But, uh, because healthcare is so complex, um, there's so many things, at least in this country that you have to consider. So, um, health insurance is a big one. Um, I think it's very interesting that, um, my insurance, we'll use me for an example. I don't mind. My insurance, um, would have, um, I have excellent healthcare and insurance, thankfully, very grateful for that. They would have paid hundred percent out of pocket for me to go to a hospital and have our daughter, um, with a physician, um, no questions asked. However, because I'm a labor and delivery nurse or a perinatal nurse, um, and for people who might not know what that term is, perinatal is just, um, the branch of nursing where we take care of women, um, who are pregnant, who aren't ready to deliver, but maybe they're at the hospital for certain issues. They need to be monitored all through labor and delivery and to postpartum care. So we use perinatal nurses, kind of an umbrella term for that. Um, but if I wanted, which I did want to have an out of hospital delivery with a licensed midwife, nurse midwife, um, under her care as a non high risk, um, patient, um, that was going to cost me thousands of dollars out of pocket. Insurance would not pay a dime to me for that type of care. And I think that is one example of why um, we see issues with maternal health care. Um, access for low-risk deliveries, we're putting them in hospitals because insurance will pay for that, but they won't pay for someone to have an out-of-hospital delivery under the care of someone who is licensed to deliver that type of care. Um, so if I were 
low income, let's say, and I really didn't want to go to the hospital because I'm healthy, I've always been healthy. I have a healthy pregnancy, would still have to go to the hospital because my ins- that's what my insurance would pay because I wouldn't be able to pay out of pocket for that. Um, and I just think um, that's just one example of the imbalance and in insurance at work that's driving decisions for people with really no logical sense as to why they're doing that. <laughs> um, it made no sense to me why they would be willing to pay a crazy amount of money to have a hospital delivery. Hospitals are expensive um, versus pay very little to have an out of hospital delivery experience. Anyway, so that, that, you know, insurance, um, payment for services, those all, those are all things. And then I also touched on a little bit there, like socioeconomical status, um, a person's ability to pay and provide for things. Um, uh, people of certain backgrounds are going to have less prenatal care. They're going to have less, um, follow-up care, postpartum, people who don't have access to resources, or even the idea, like the um, the education to know that they should advocate for that kind of care. I'll give another example that we briefly talked about, touched on earlier, but um, I see a lot of patients who um, have a de- desire to breastfeed, and I'm going to say breastfeed. I understand some people might not like that, but um, they have a desire to breastfeed their newborn or their child. And um, in educating them about how they're going to manage going back to work, because the reality is um, in the United States, we don't get great maternity leave. We don't protect and care for our moms the way other countries do. Um, And so some of these women are going back to work six weeks or less. Um, And so we're talking to them, what's your plan? How will you continue to feed your baby to be successful? And we'll talk to them about pumping in the workspace, which is protected by law, federally and state level protections, at least here in California too, for women to have a safe and sanitary place to pump and feed their babies. And how many women that we ask about their workspace having this, and they don't. Um, And of course we can tell them, okay, well, you can tell your employer that they're, that's breaking the law. But again, we're talking about a, um, a population that might not have the ability to be that assertive with an employer. Um, and so, so then we have a problem there too. We're not, um, you know, breastfeeding a child has so many benefits and again, it's not for everyone. I don't, I definitely don't want to sound like I'm pushing breastfeeding. Like that's the only thing feeding, feeding a baby is best for baby, but we do know as a, as, um, healthcare workers that, that breastfeeding does have benefits to both mother and baby health benefits, actual tangible, it lowers the risk of cancer later in life, um, diabetes, et cetera. So we know that breastfeeding is, but yet we're still struggling to have protections for women for spaces that they can breastfeed safely. All that makes sense that insurance companies don't want to take on the risk of paying for something outside of a setting they can tightly control. And at the same time, that's not necessarily what works best for patients because mm-hmm. of the the way that stress and environment and support and comfort and all those sort of things can impact um, something as as crucial and as sacred as as giving birth. Yeah, well, think um, about it. Like, uh, I like to give this analogy to anyone who um, who will listen to it. But uh, so think about when when an animal 
has a baby, let's say a puppy, let's say you have a dog that's going to have a baby, um, they find a place that's put away. They don't put themselves in the middle of the living room. They go find themselves a place that they can nest, that they can bring it in. It's often very low light. It's something with very minimal sound, very minimal interruptions, right? And then we take a woman, and again, some women thought I was absolutely crazy. Why would I ever want to have a baby outside of a hospital? You know, the risk to them was, and that's fair. Every and that's I think that's my my prerogative is that I want women to have the right to choose that. Um, but we tell them, you know, we've given this mindset that giving birth is dangerous and it's got to be with all of these people around and the lights that they put on you, you know, as you're about ready to have a baby, even if it's not a C-section, if it's a vaginal delivery, the lights come on and, and it's just very opposite of like the, the nature of having a baby. It's, um, your fight or flight kicks in your, you know, it's, it's not a safe, quiet, lightly dimmed space, you know? So I, it's just interesting. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise, yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients, but I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my eight sleep pod pro cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8Sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Well, and you talk about preeclampsia as a risk, and preeclampsia is high blood pressure, and stress mm-hmm. raises blood pressure. <laughs> Women are often in labor for long periods of time. It's like, yeah. there's so much pain and stress and discomfort involved in labor as it is, it seems like anything that you can do to um, make the woman more comfortable uh, would absolutely make sense. You talk about um, the impact of socioeconomic status, our policies in the U.S. with regard to maternity leave. Um, There's something else you brought up just then. 
is that breastfeeding lowers the risk of cancer, diabetes, all these other conditions. Um, I think it's also better for the microbiome and then the microbiome influences the gut brain connection, the immune system. Um, it also influences attachment and the more secure attachment you can, uh, establish for a baby and their, and their mother in the early stages of life, the, the healthier their relationships stand a chance of being throughout their lifetime. So it's easy to make a case. And and I say this as somebody who doesn't know very much about perinatal health, but just, I'm just free associating here. Um, it's easy to make a case for why breastfeeding is ideal when possible. And I noticed you were very careful when you're expressing that to not say anything that could offend you were you're really tiptoeing like and do you feel like there's this kind of trend overall of walking on eggshells in the healthcare field where it feels like you always have to kind of protect people's feelings because you don't want to make people feel bad you don't want to make um a woman feel bad for bottle feeding her baby whether that's you know, arguably more on the medical necessity end for whatever reason for that family or whether it's more on the convenience side of things. Um, Do you feel like it's possible in a healthcare setting in your position to provide accurate information to patients about what is really best for them and their babies? Or do you feel like there's kind of this, oh, we have to um, withhold certain information for fear of offending people? Yeah, I think both and. I think that sometimes, absolutely, um, there is a state of needing to tiptoe around certain issues or to just be really careful. Um, Certainly, as a nurse and as a person, I don't, my goal is never to offend or to make someone feel uncomfortable. My goal largely is the health of, and that's perinatal nursing, making it a little more challenging, is the goal of two people, of goal of, of a health for mom, a healthy baby as well, both, both, both parties. And there are definitely times where it seems harder to talk about certain things. Other times not. Um, in the space of, of breastfeeding, I don't feel that so much. Um, I think because right now there's a really big push in the United States at large to promote breastfeeding. And I think because it's something that's being um, um, like it's it it's being pushed and and there's people have heard of baby friendly hospitals. Um, and the goal, I think, of of um, maybe the World Health Health Organization is to have all baby friendly hospitals by some certain year, um, or the equivalent. And so there's this really big push behind it. So it's really easy to talk about that. Uh, but yeah, there are definitely some things that are harder, uh, because at the end of the day, it is a little bit of a service industry. Um, and it all comes down. I keep in my head, I keep thinking of the words informed consent and that's, and that's, what's really important because if I have a, a patient, um, it is my duty, even if this person may seem like they don't want to hear me talk about breastfeeding, they've already made up their mind. It is still my duty as a nurse and to provide healthcare, good healthcare, to tell them the risks of choosing not to breastfeed and the benefits of choosing breastfeed. I, you know, I often will say if it's someone who's really just wants to do it for social reasons, they want to bottle feed um, with formula, I'll say, I understand that, but I just want to really quickly go over or, or, even start with questions. Why do you want to do this? Why, um, what do you, what do you think this looks like? And kind of get an idea of behind things. But at the end of the day, my job is to provide 
good informed consent. And that's something that's kind of a hot topic right now in other areas of healthcare, like transgender medicine with children is, are they giving informed consent? Um, and so whether or not a patient may or may not want to hear the education I want to give them, I, I, I have to, at some point, do the best I can so that they are making an informed decision. It's still their decision to make, but that they make it a completely informed one. I think that's a really ethically sound and sensible way of framing the issue. And I agree. It is about informed consent. And some of the things that you might want to give your patients informed consent about with regard to what we know tends to work out best for mom and baby are going to be things that aren't always the most economically viable options or the most politically correct ones. Right. And and as, as well, they're not always going to protect the patient's feelings, um, especially because most mothers have uh, a lot of guilt because they're decent people. And, and that love that you feel for your baby, you always know that you'll never be able to do right by them. So there's a certain amount of guilt that comes with being a mom as is. And so yeah. then you know, to know that there's something you could have done better to protect your baby's uh, chance of health outcomes, but that you didn't feel like you had the stamina or the resources or the knowledge at the time. It's got to be really hard. Now, when it comes to this first issue that you raised of how we're actually struggling in the U.S. with maternity care, um, and then the second issue that you raised had to do with fertility care. So I'm wondering if those two are connected because I posed the question, why, why is maternal health more of an issue rather than less of an issue than it's ever been with the medical resources that we have now? And do you think part of it is that, and I'll loop in informed consent too, that women are not, that we're not having those difficult, honest, necessary conversations as a society Sort of like the one I had with Jennifer Law when we talked about, you know, how fertility declines with age. Yeah. Um, that it feels like women are being sold this um, this idea that you can wait such a long time to have a baby. Um, now, I happen to be uh, the child of uh, – my mother got pregnant on the first try at 43 – um, she actually had gray hair when she got pregnant with me, and then she started dyeing it brown because people looked at her funny, like, who is this woman with gray hair and a round belly? Um, <laughs> so, like, my mom lucked out, but I know it's not that easy right. for a lot of women. There's also, I feel like, some inconvenient truths that, uh, that we're maybe kind of culturally turning a corner at looking at with regard to the impact of birth control. Mm. Um, Dr. Sarah Hill's book has come out on that. Um, we have women like um, Mary Harrington and – oh, why am I forgetting her name? I adore her. That British woman. You know the one. Louise Perry. <laughs> okay. I was going to say that, but then I was like, well, there's also Millie Hill who talks a lot about the feminist movement in birth, and she's in okay. uh, front. But yes, Louise Perry. Yes. So I feel I like her. we are kind of yeah, – I don't know if it, culturally we're turning a corner or if that just has more to do with the intellectual circles that I personally run in. It can yeah. be hard in this world of micro-celebrity where – you know, we're not all watching the same news. We're not right. all watching the same things with millions of views. We're all in our own little corner of the internet with several thousand or hundred thousand views of this and that here. It can be hard to get a sense of what all people right. are being exposed to. But but 
within my little pocket of the internet, I feel like I'm observing this trend toward, no, we need to have honest conversations about the limits of our body and how mm-hmm. our health and fertility actually works as women mm-hmm. and and what's best for women and what the the cons as well as the pros of the birth control pill um, have, have been for all of these years. Um, so that leaves me wondering, um, do you, is it your perspective or, or maybe the, the field is the field in disagreement right now over this issue of how do we provide accurate information so that women are giving informed consent, not just to the more minute decisions that they're making in the details of a particular pregnancy, but that women are making decisions based on informed consent for how they plan their entire lives mm-hmm. starting in their 20s. Yeah. Um, are are we lying to women about how fertility works? And is that placing mothers and babies at higher risk? Yeah, I think the short answer to that is yes. I don't think that we are talking about the choices that we're making. Um, and you know, it's another one of those, like who, who, who bears the burden of that? It's not a burden, but who, who bears that responsibility of helping a 20 something navigate these types of decision decisions, um, for the rest of their lives. Because right now, if you, if you listen to the fertility industry or the commercials on Facebook ads, oh, I'm old Facebook or, you know, Twitter or whatever, um, where young women are being told that they can have it all. You can, you don't need to think about this right now because there's a solution. There's a technology that will help you. And it's become so, it's crazy in the last 20 years, how how commonplace it's become really, as far as, um, and I'm just talking specifically about just like fertility treatments like IVF um, in the last 20 years and surrogacy. And now we're, you know, we're seeing a lot more like, Oh, of course. Have you tried? I recently had, um, I recently had a guest on Venus rising talk about her experience and she was in her twenties when she was, um, struggling with some infertility with her husband. And right away, you know, she went to, um, she got a second opinion, but she still felt like she wasn't given informed consent, um, about what she was, um, doing. And then she said, it's also really hard because when you really want a baby, um, and you really want a biology, biological child and someone's offering you a solution, you kind of have these like blinders on and you're only focused on, on the, on the goal of having a baby. And so even if she were to be given informed consent or make an informed decision, it's really hard to make any decision that didn't end up with a baby. And it was w- worth the risk, so to speak. The other thing is, I would argue that in a lot of these technologies, informed consent can't be given. It's impossible because there isn't enough data. We aren't tracking women. So one of the things that really gets me fired up is um, the topic of egg donation. I put that in quotes if you're just listening because it's not donation. You do get payment for your eggs, for your time and discomfort, but you're getting you're getting a payment. and there's a lot of things that really fire me up about it. One, it's the advertising. Um, These clinics um, or businesses that are trying to collect eggs, um, whether it be for um, an infertile couple, a gay gay couple, or um, research, 
um, they're allowed to advertise really wherever they will let them. I didn't know this before meeting Jennifer, but it's illegal for credit card companies to advertise on college campuses. But it is not illegal for fertility industry to advertise um, a free spring break trip to donate your eggs. And recently, actually, it's probably not that recent, a couple of years ago, the um, newspaper at MIT like stopped putting, um, it was the student-led newspaper there. And they stopped putting um, egg donation ads because they they opened their eyes and they were like, this is highly coercive. (laughs) This is also, um, you know, they were targeting um, Asian students um, with certain, you know, features and IQs and majors and and (laughs) just like, so unethical. Um, but so then you have, you have that. And then these women are, um, selling their eggs, um, and they're in college, probably using it to pay some debt, maybe for a spring break trip, maybe something else. And, um, and they donate their eggs or they sell their eggs. And then they think about, oh, I might have genetic offspring. And now we have 23andMe and Ancestry and people are starting to be able to connect. Anonymity is completely out the window, especially in cases of like sperm donation that used to be, we have a film called Anonymous Father's Day. There's no such thing as anonymity anymore. Um, But those women who donated their eggs or sold their eggs during their college years we don't really have a clear picture on their health from being put on those hormones. We don't have a clear picture of what um, their fertility, their cancer risks, because we don't track them. There's no database. And so, and and I don't, I had an interview with Liz Schreier on Venus Rising, and I really, um, really recommend people go listen to that. Um, she, um, donated her eggs. She now runs uh, like a support group. Anyway, it's it's an amazing um, podcast and she kind of talks about it. But I think that they do that on purpose. I don't think fertility industries are largely excited about doing research studies because they're going to find that there are health risks to these women. They're going to find that there are problems ethically. um, Ethically, as far as like socially, like what are these kids dealing with, uh, with knowing that they are, um, donor conceived, um, and then also health risks. Um, we're going to, I think that, so I don't think informed consent exists in the space of fertility, um, fertility care. That was a long answer. And I'm not even sure I answered your question. Well, no, I mean, it all makes, it, it all makes <laughs> a lot of sense. And when I talked to Jennifer Lal about this, I talked about how, you know, if you are a healthy woman of college age, in today's society, likely you are afraid of how powerful your fertility is because that's how we've been conditioned. We've been, yeah. you know, conditioned to live. I mean, the, these girls are growing up in hookup culture, mm-hmm. so they're expected to be promiscuous. It's pretty much the norm. And then to bear all the burden themselves, uh, emotionally, financially, materially, of the risk of pregnancy. And there's there's no very little emotional or material investment from the males. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just talking in generalities here. Of course, individual experiences may vary. And so there's this this fear of getting pregnant. and and I, I think I think there's just this switch that goes on at some point 
for many women between spending their whole lives just feeling like my, my fertility is so powerful that, um, of course, I have an abundance of eggs to donate and I can't relate to people who would want a baby because I'm in college and I have no money and I don't have a st study boyfriend, <laughs> you know, going from that to being 35 and married and and then just at that point realizing that your fertility is actually a dwindling resource and that these uh, procedures might have affected it in yeah. some way. Yeah. Now but you also I think in, to answer your original question is yeah, we're just not we're not educating our young folks enough, I don't think. And again, who's who should who should do that education, parents? Um there are opportunity costs. It is a little bit of an economic game as mm -hmm. far as um, if you want to pursue your career, and that is absolutely, that's great. But know that that's going to probably affect your fertility. Your fertile years are your 20s. Um, and we're getting, at least what I see anecdotally, and I think there's probably research to back this up, but we're seeing women getting pregnant later and later and later as well, whether it be from typically from the help of for the fertility industry, but we're also not meant to really be pregnant in our forties. We can be, it happens, but that's not the time, you know, things start to your egg, um, your egg quality goes down, health, other health problems start to arise. You know, I'm in my thirties and my husband just sent me a meme about now we just need to be dieting and our backs hurt all the time, you know? <laughs> so it's just, um, as we age, things happen. And so I think that that plays a role into also maternal morbidities. Think other things, comorbidities are, are also happening. And it's hard to argue against the reality that, of course, it would be more advantageous for mother and child, for the mom to be young and active and healthy and fit, to be able to run and play and engage your children in activities and and to not have a huge generational gap so that there's not such a um, gap in sort of cultural knowledge because mm -hmm. the culture does change more over 40 years than it does over 20 mm -hmm. years. But But these are the things that people are afraid to say because they don't want to offend mm -hmm. um, moms who choose to have kids in their 40s or or maybe who didn't choose but couldn't find a suitable mate or couldn't get financially stable. Um, so you also raised an important question in there. You, you raised the question of whose responsibility is it to, even if we could give informed consent, which you make the case that maybe we can't because we don't actually have enough data, on how these so-called treatments affect people. Um, and, and, and this is where we can have sort of an interdisciplinary discussion because you have one role as a nurse and I have a role as a therapist. And I, I think about the needs of young people. Um, I call them baby adults, uh, you know, and, uh, the, the technical term is, uh, transition age youth. Actually, the Ooh. word transition has been completely co-opted and redefined right. in the last 10 years. I get triggered but, now when I hear that word. Even yeah. <laughs> transition age youth. Yeah, the meaning has really changed. But my first job was with TAY, T-A-Y, transition age youth. My first job out of grad school. Um, so that was 2013, 2014. Uh, I was working with 18 to 24-year-olds primarily. So that's what we mean by transition age, you know, the transition into adulthood. 
So when I think about the needs of that population, what I've experienced in the therapist seat, that's certainly individual experiences vary people's backgrounds, what they're bringing to therapy, you know, what someone's going to need if, if they've uh, suffered acute or chronic complex trauma is going to be different than your average sort of 22-year-old neurotic anxiety prone, otherwise kind of normal young person. When I think about, you know, sort of setting aside the severe trauma cases or cases like the transition age youth I originally worked with were people who had been hospitalized and had some form of psychosis usually. So if we set aside those kind of more acute populations where they really do need to focus on getting mentally stable before anything else, I think a lot of young people who, yeah, they they got some issues, they have some anxiety, depression, whatever, but they actually need to focus more on getting materially grounded. And they don't seem to, in my opinion, from working with this population, they don't seem to need or benefit from as much therapy that focuses on introspection and self-reflection. I think, I don't know how much this has to say about the developmental needs of that age group in general compared to what it has to say about this generation and the time of uh, the time that they're coming of age and the, the needs that they're facing as sort of a cultural cohort. Um, but I think that too much navel gazing can be a bad thing and that what a lot of these young people need is sort of to fill in the gaps of all those places that their parents and teachers and their experiences thus far have not prepared them for adult life. Um, I find myself when I'm in the therapist role with a 20 or 23-year-old more almost adopting the role of a life coach at times because we're talking about adulting, (laughs) basic functioning. You know, they might be experiencing their first or second or third time moving homes, dating someone, applying for jobs. Um, They need to learn how these things work and how to deal with rejection and minor ups and downs. And um, so when it comes to the needs of young women, let's say between 20 to 25, at what point does my role as a therapist shift into more that advisor, mentor, coach role um, where I'm providing just information? Because, And I will sometimes do that with my patients. I'm like, okay, is it all right with you if I take off my therapist hat and put on my experienced adult hat? Because <laughs> I see that you're struggling with some early adulthood stuff. Yeah. And I just want to give you some context here. And whenever I do that, they're usually grateful that I was straightforward mm-hmm. with them and that I just told them what they needed to hear from someone in their 30s or older, you know? Yeah. Um, so when I think about being in that role, and this this isn't something that has particularly come up, but but speaking in hypotheticals now, working in more a coaching capacity or a mentoring or advising capacity – with a young woman who's just trying to get grounded and figure out how things work and how to um, focus on doing things that give her a sense of accomplishment, competence, character, life experience, because that's what's that's actually going to resolve the anxiety better than taking a more traditional therapeutic approach some of the time. Because the anxiety is stemming from insecurity 
And the insecurity is stemming from lack of life, lack of life experience. Yeah, There's not knowledge. a foundation mm-hmm. of, of competence there. Um, so we, sometimes we need to focus on building that foundation up. So when I think about being in that role with a woman of that age, at what point is it the job of a therapist, coach, mentor, or advisor to have an honest conversation with a young woman mm-hmm. about sort of what she's gathered from her peers and culture about what she should want or might want versus what might actually be best for her body, mm-hmm. for her long-term health, for her future. You know, between 20 and 25, that's the last five years of the development of prefrontal cortex, regions of the brain associated with long-term planning and decision-making. And a lot of young people this age, that's another sort of role I take on sometimes is helping them develop the capacity to think three months into the future and plan backwards from there. And then think one week into the future and plan backwards from there. I really hold, I hold these young people's hands on things like figuring out when to do their laundry. If that's what they need, then we're going to be a whole lot more productive by helping them figure out when they should do their laundry than right. by all this endless navel gazing introspection, you know? So <laughs> so thinking ahead to the future. And then and then how does that intersect with the dating market and the culture of their peers and hookup culture? And oftentimes there's a link there with sexual trauma because a lot of young women um, they're, it's, it's tragic how their, their first sexual experiences were often quite disturbing. Mm-hmm. As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Yeah, it's it's funny because as you were telling me that, I had to think back of a somewhat recent time. I um, was hanging out with my nieces and nephews and we were doing a the nephew wanted to do like a bake off. He had gotten a recipe book. He's like 10. And, um, 
So we were, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to go to the store. Everyone's going to have to buy their ingredients. We got to figure it out. And just how many skills we're lacking from in the ages, you know, 10 up to 17, you know? And yeah, I'm like, now fold, what's folding? Like, you know, and just the hilarious, and I, and I had said in, in this experience, I was like, and this is why we need home economics in our schools. And why are we getting rid of it? Because none of you know how to do any of this. And um, just even like the time management of, and it was just hilarious, but it's so true. And I think um, we're digressing a lot here, but I just think that we need to be teaching kids, even from a young age, these life experiences, things we need to be, you know, talking about instead of living this life of like, there are no limits. You can be whatever you want to be. You can wait forever. We really need to be grounded in, no, there are some realistic expectations, you know, like we do need to be thinking about your future at a certain point. You know, I don't want to stress kids out about, but I think, I think you hit the nail on the head with, you know, with reducing the anxiety by just teaching them the life experiences and that there are, there are limits. We do have limits. I'm, how, I'm laughing with you because my stepkids are around that age and I, I have personal experience on a weekly basis of something coming up where <laughs> it's like an issue with my partner sometimes where I'm like, oh, you thought that when he said he wanted to do the thing that that meant he knew how to do the thing? And how much time it would take? <laughs> like, no, you got to watch. You got to supervise and scaffold the skill development. Right. Um, I. <laughs> so there was um, our our ten year old wanted to make pressed flowers. Bless his heart. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that I came along to check out how it was going because if I had not, I will tell you what would have happened. Weeks would have passed, and at some point, we would have opened this closet and found um, heaps of moldy, rotting dandelions pressed together between books, causing mold and rot in some of the kids' favorite books. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, oh, oh. So so what this really means is you would like to learn how Mm -hmm. to make pressed flowers. Let me help you with that. Yeah. Here's what would have happened if you'd left this on its own. No, you can't take 20 dandelions and smush them between two pages. <laughs> like this. <laughs> you know, and I said it to my partner and he was just like, he was just like, oh, I thought he knew what he was doing. I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. He- yeah. That actually brought up a, a thought in me based on also our what we've been discussing is also I feel like in medicine – even in even in labor and delivery, we've become a little bit more concierge as far as like we're more willing or doctors are more willing to listen to the patient and take instruction from the patient versus the other way around. And I just am thinking about that with your dandelion story where a patient might think that they know best as far as their care, or they may want a certain thing, and they are just looking for someone to give them that certain thing rather than teach them how to be healthy or teach them how to have a successful whatever it is. Um, I'm thinking about, we talked a little bit about the changes in healthcare. And one of the things that we've also seen a lot recently too is elective inductions, patients who are just ready to have their baby. That has its own risks as well. And so it's, 
And we're seeing this in other types of medicine as well that you're more experienced with too, with um, transgender medicine, patients who are just, this is what I want and I need someone to do it for me versus teach me about this so I can make a healthy decision. You know, so I see that pair as you were telling that, I was like, man, that's just really ringing that bell in my head as far as like what we expect as patients from, from our physicians. And I think the fear, people are so afraid of shaming each other. Like we live in an era of shaming shame. Like shame Mm -hmm. is like the worst thing you can have. You would never want to shame someone, right? Oh no, shame. And it's like, yeah, there's a way to do it. There's a way to issue correction that's shaming. Like Mm -hmm. if I come along and I, well, I did, I did laugh good naturedly, but if I laughed in a scorning, mocking sort of way, or if I'd shouted or said, I can't believe you would be so stupid. How, how could you do this? Yeah, like that would be a horrible way to react. Right. But I gave a lighthearted chuckle and I was like, oh, oh, sweetie. Oh, you're trying to make press flat. Oh, this is how you thought to do it? Oh, okay. But, you know, my job there as the adult is to recognize what the child is trying to do. Mm-hmm. I see that you would like to learn how to make pressed flowers. Let me help you with that. Mm-hmm. So I see what you're attempting here. And let me explain why this wouldn't have worked. Because mm-hmm. when pressing flowers, we need to think about moisture content. We need to think about the ultimate shape and form that we're looking at. And so we press one at a time. And you know, and then I we ended up going for a walk, collecting flowers. I showed them how to make pressed flowers. It was great. So mm-hmm. it's th- my job is to recognize what the child wants mm-hmm. and then say, okay, Let's see what parts of this process you've figured out already and what parts you need my help figuring out. And it seems like there's a parallel here between that sort of parenting process and the um, patient doctor or patient nurse process where you don't have to shame someone for trying to do their own research or fix their own problems or go about something that they think they want. But you do need to recognize what is the need that they're attempting to fulfill? What's their goal Mm -hmm. here? How can I recognize the ways in which they're striving toward that goal that are sensible that I can validate and say, okay, mm-hmm. here's here's what you did research accurately or here's what you're trying that makes sense. And then now let me add my knowledge and guide you from right. there because ultimately, you know, the child's going to be happier with the pressed flowers if, if they receive the adult guidance and the patient who's trying to be healthy is going to be healthier if the the person responsible for their care can come along and say, I see what you're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me help you. Right. Right. And that's what I'm going to segue for a second, because you touched on another important thing, um, the the doctor-patient relationship. And you mentioned at the beginning um, that I'm the program director of the Paul Ramsey Institute. And that is one of the biggest topics that we talk about during the Paul Ramsey Institute. Um which I'll explain what that is in just a second, but talk about what is the doctor-patient relationship? How has it changed over time? Is that a good change? Um, Are doctors technicians? Are they more paternalists? Are they father figures? Is it a covenant relationship? What is that? And um, so the Paul Ramsey Institute is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Culture where we Um, every two years we have a fellowship. It's a two year long fellowship where we invite, um, early career individuals or scholars, um, into a fellowship. They might be in medical school. They might have just graduated medical school and be in residency. They might just be out of residency. 
Um, they might be studying theology or getting a doctor of philosophy. Um, they might be lawyers. We've had several lawyers come through the program and they're just learning about how to morally and ethically think about some of these biomedical issues that we've kind of touched on fertility, end of life care, doctor, physician, or, um, yeah, doctors and physician patient, um, relationships, um, things like that. And it's interesting because some of these students that come through our fellowship are getting a degree in bioethics or they're getting, um, they're going through medical school and they'll have one course on bioethics and bioethics isn't going anywhere. If anything, this is something we need to be talking about because we do have technologies in beginning of life care. I mean, we've seen some of us, again, it depends on what sphere you are in the internet and what part of Twitter you're on, but you've seen, you know, the new bio bags where they're going to be, you know, potentially making or growing fetuses outside of the womb, you know, and that's a huge bioethical con concern and something to be thinking about. And so the fellowship exists to help young career folks think about these issues and to talk about them amongst much older, wiser scholars who will ask questions, guide the discussion. And so that is one of my favorite projects. We make films, we write papers, we do all kinds of things at the Center for Bioethics and Culture. But the Paul Ramsey Institute is our chance to help build a future where people are thinking critically about things that are happening in the world of bioethics and biomedicine. That sounds wonderful and, and so needed. If someone is listening right now thinking, <laughs> this is for me, how do they find out more? Yeah. So <clears throat> I... Unfortunately, applications have just closed for this year and next ones are 2025, but I am very good about keeping a list of folks who do email me throughout the year. Hey, when? And then I, as soon as they open, I'm very quick to be like, hey, remember when you emailed me a year ago? They're open. And if you're still interested, this is how you apply. But they can just email me. Probably the easiest way. Um, it's Callie.fell, F-E-L-L, -L, not sell, fell, like I fell down. Callie.fell at cbc-network.org. That's probably the best way to find out more information. And I can put you on a list so that you can find out more about it once the application cycle opens. Okay, great. Well, that sounds like our closing credits, but we do have 10 minutes left. I have 10 minutes left. A few have 10 minutes left. And <laughs> I have 10 minutes A few left. more things on our list. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I didn't mean to close this out early. I was just trying to. No, it was, it was a I perfect segue to, to pitch that. And I think, um, yeah, these conversations are, are really important. So um, you had also mentioned the drug problem and the erasure of women. I noted, though, um, something that came up on my mind in the last few minutes uh, that we haven't talked about yet, which is I've heard that there is a pattern in which doctors encourage women to get C-sections when that might not always be necessary and that specifically these C-sections are planned and scheduled in a way that is convenient for the doctors. Can you speak on that? That is not a myth. <laughs> that does occur. Um, however, I am hopeful, and this is where I'm going to have to put in some anecdotal stuff just because I'm not super, um, I don't work all over the country, but I, I am in groups that um, talk about this um, on, on a national level. Uh, but not a myth. That certainly does happen. However, I do think that the tides are also changing on that for several reasons. Um, one is that 
this is starting to become something that doctors have to report. Um, hospitals have to report. Um, C-sections cost money. Um, so I think having to report that is a, is a, is a change in the tide there. Um, fortunately where I work, I believe if not the lowest, we hold one of the lower, um, rates of C-section in the entire state of California. So I work with an actually wonderful team of doctors who, um, really try to avoid a C-section where it's not indicated, um, like a, just a scheduled C-section like you talked about. Um, but that is not a myth. There are certainly, um, and I read a book, I'm trying to think of which one, I think it might've been cut it out. I'm looking at my bookshelf, it's me looking away, um, to remember which one it was. I think it might've been cut it out, um, where they talk about how, um, or the author talks about how C-sections are pushed or encouraged because they're the most controlled situation, so to speak. You can time it, um, typically with the doctor's schedule in mind. Um, we never have scheduled C-sections on night shift. You know, they're always on day shift when physicians are up, but they were just, you know, the book was talking about how, um, it's, it's a lower litigation. It's a lower doctors are more afraid of, and I'm really doing a poor job. I'm trying to not, um, doing a poor job of explaining this, but basically a scheduled C-section helps mitigate any type of risk to the doctor as far as, um, let's say for example, twins where there might be a risk for a baby. Um, typically one can be born vaginally because baby is cephalic head down, and then they might do a C-section for the second baby because it's not head down. Um, so they might say, okay, well, why don't we just do a C-section for both? And that mitigates some of the risk of things that could go wrong during the vaginal birth of baby A. So that's why I think a lot of physicians might um, encourage a scheduled C-section because there might be some sort of risk that a potential risk that they're trying to avoid. But certainly um, there are cases where doctors will just schedule them and encourage them for as a um, in the same book, they talk about doctors who are going on vacation. And so they want to have, make sure their, 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 their patients have their babies before they leave or X, Y, and Z, you know, I'll be here during this time. So I can just, we can just do it. And the thing that's being pushed now though, is the induction. We can induce you, we can induce labor, um, rather than a C-section. So then comes all of the things with an induction. They take a lot longer. Um, so I think, I think we're starting to see a shift in that, but it still does happen. But we're also now seeing a shift in increase in inductions of labor for various reasons. Some of those being patients saying, I'm tired of being pregnant. I've hit 38 weeks. I'm ready to have a baby. I'd like to be induced. So, Wow. I want to step so delicately because like far be it for me to judge a woman in that situation, right. like what she is physically going through. But at the same time, it's like any slippery slope in today's culture where if you make if you give someone the easier path most of us are are likely to take the easier path but where does that right lead and when i think about from a psychological lens um the the act of natural birth is so 
such a profound cooperation between the mother and baby. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, you know, up until this point, the baby has been a part of the mother's body completely. Shortly after birth, the baby will have their first experiences of being separate, but there's still that that earlier, you know, what's it called? The fourth trimester. Fourth trimester. Where the baby that. doesn't actually realize that they're two separate. The baby still thinks it's very much part of the mother. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So when I think about psychologically, what is the impact on mom and baby of feeling trust in the natural rhythm and process that they can work together, the baby can pass through that vaginal canal in this sort of divine symbiotic cooperation, and in the process, get all of the healthy bacteria that are in the vaginal canal to help set up the baby's immune system and healthy gut. Um, and then the first the first feeling in life is one of, we did it. Together, me yeah. and my mom helped me, and now I'm, hello world. Thinking about that as a formative experience compared to the formative experience of, I feel like I'm working on something here. I feel like change is afoot and I'm preparing for it. I know something big is coming and I I have a role to play in this. And ah, now I'm, whoa, I've just been ripped out. Just been ripped out of the womb. I was working on something. You know, it's it's this interruption mm-hmm. of a natural process. And in that, there's sort of, it would seem like maybe a sort of a break in trust, a break in the trust of the natural process, trust in mom, trust in one's own ability to overcome obstacles. And again, I don't want to say this in a way that makes people feel bad for the choices that they've had, um, that they've made, which are complicated and many reasons. And it's not to say that your baby is doomed to not trust themselves in their creative process for the rest of their life. If you had a cesarean, I was born by cesarean. Me too. But, um, but it's just something to think about. Yeah, it is. And I, and I, I think it just comes back to this. Like I am all for women being able to make their own decisions, but they have to do it under the guise of being informed in that decision. And, um, I spoke with, um, Millie Hill on Venus Rising as well. And she talks about this. Um, her book is Give Birth Like a Feminist. And and it's just, it's all about making a decision, not out of fear that society, like society shows us, and we've got this really narrow vision of like, childbirth is painful and it is dangerous. And that's kind of like where we've been stuck. And I think that work like from Millie and others are starting to shift that um, that it doesn't have to be this super painful, scary, dangerous thing. Um, and I do want to kind of backtrack a little bit because I, I, I don't want to put physicians under a negative light as far as the C-section thing. I think my point about the risk and the fact that they want to try to mitigate it is that they are under so much pressure again from insurance companies, the insurance that provide their malpractice insurance. And, um, a physician can be sued up to, I think it's till the child is 18, which is one of the longest um, timeframes for any type of lawsuit. And so I think physicians are trying to make really, you know, I think they're trying to treat their patients very well, but they're also getting like this hammer, this pressure. Um, and so it's not worth the risk of losing, you know, because if they don't have malpractice insurance then they can't practice really. So, um, 
I don't. I just wanted to backpedal there for a second yeah. and and clear up the. I well, don't. Thanks think, for giving the bigger picture. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that book, like I said, um, cut it out. Really talks about that. And there's another one. I wish I could remember the name that talks about that. Like um, sometimes doctors are getting a bad rap because they're they're the person doing the operation or they're the one providing care. But there's so much else going on. Administration from the hospital. Um, insurance companies. There's a lot going on. So um want to be clear there. <laughs> well, I'll just give one final comment and then we'll wrap up. You know, okay. when you talk about this pushback against the the belief that birth is painful and dangerous, I want to say, well, of course birth is painful and dangerous. It is. There's truth in that. And you know what else is you know what else there's truth in is as being painful and dangerous, puberty. And now that's being pathologized. And now we're being sold this because puberty is painful and dangerous and scary and a transformational process where you're going into the unknown that children should be rescued from it and shouldn't have to go through it. And so I think more broadly, we, we were sort of in this culture that's afraid of death, transformation, change, pain, fear, danger. But at the same time, those are necessary and they're parts of what make life worth living and meaningful. So that's my spin on that. I love it. Um, That was great. (laughs) So Callie, where can people find you? Yes. So you can email me, like I said, callie.fell at cbc-network.org. Best way to get me. Um, I do check my email all the time, uh, probably too much. And then also you can find um, our um, Venus Rising, my podcast, um, on all of your popular podcast places, iTunes, Spotify, just Venus rising. Um, and then you can come to the um, Center for Bioethics and Culture. Our website is cbc-network.org. Um, you'll be able to search and filter by whatever topic that we cover that might interest you. Um, our films, all of them, I can say now, Detransition Diaries included, are free on YouTube. So you just go to our YouTube channel, um, Center for Bioethics and Culture, and watch our films for free. If you still want to buy them, you can buy them on Vimeo. Um, but um, yeah, that's, that's how to that's reach great. me. Yeah. And on CBC's YouTube, you also yes. have episodes of Venus Rising there that's as correct. well. That, that is correct. Okay, great. Callie, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. To check out my book recommendations, articles, wellness products, guest episodes on other podcasts, consulting services, and lots more, visit sometherapist.com. Or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at sometherapist. If you'd like to go deeper, join my community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. Members can dialogue with other listeners, post questions for upcoming podcast guests to respond to, or ask questions for me to respond to in exclusive members-only Q&A live streams. To learn more about the gender crisis, watch our film, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care, at nowaybackfilm.com. Special thanks to my producers, Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix, and to Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. If you appreciate this podcast and want more people to find it, kindly take a moment to rate, review, like, comment, and share on your platforms of choice. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, 
and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.